All right, and welcome into the Duck Territory podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel's across the way. Hi, guys. And if you're listening to us on the podcast and you want to be able to interact with us uh, as we're recording this, we, we record every Monday around 10.30, 10.15, uh, ahead of Willie Taggart's Monday press conference. You just got to go on facebook.com slash Oregon247, like our page, you'll get notifications uh, that we are on Facebook and that we're recording. And... If you're listening to us on Facebook, um, people are starting to, to pull in right now. We've, we've got a, an audience building up. So if you're listening to us on Facebook, go ahead, drop your, your questions into the comments section. Give us uh, your thoughts and your impressions of the Washington State game, uh, and we'll interact with you guys, and we'll throw those in and, and get those involved with the show. Uh, but first things first, Oregon – Falls 33 to 10 at home to Washington State over the weekend. They're now four and two on the season. Uh, what we were talking before, no, doesn't look like really any really major injuries. Yeah. Uh, for this football team going forward, but the ones that they've suffered have greatly impacted the performance for Oregon on offense and you almost could say defense too. Well, I think, I mean, Justin Herbert's injury stole the, the headlines, but you also have to recognize it sounds like Taylor Alley was not available, the, who likely might have been the second string quarterback. I mean, Taker didn't say as much and I'm sure we'll get kind of more of an update as the week progresses about whether Taylor Alley figures into the, the starting role at all. Um, but also the team's top two receivers in Dylan Mitchell and, and Charles Nelson, who Nelson's now missed, I think, three straight three games. Three straight games. And, well, three and a half, I guess, because he missed half of that Wyoming game and, and, uh, Mitchell misses his, First game in a row now um, with a concussion. So those are big injuries, too, and then not to mention a couple guys defensively, on, especially inside linebacker. But I, I don't think you can diminish the, the wide receiver injuries because you've got a, a, a true freshman quarterback out there basically with without his top two weapons. And, and you saw it. he had a very, very difficult time really finding anybody reliable to catch the ball. Brennan Schooler maybe maybe kind of a, a little rare ray of light for the weekend, if you will. Right. Five catches, 61 yards. Um, like he performed pretty well, was kind of the only guy that Burmeister seemed to have a good, I guess, rapport with. Um, but other than that, I mean, boy, he had a really hard time finding people. And it's not just on the receivers either. I mean, I think the offensive line didn't do Burmeister many favors. And, and frankly, Burmeister probably didn't do many favors himself. I think he missed, um, he I, missed I, a couple of throws. A couple of throws, missed throwing the ball to a couple of guys who were open. Missed a couple of reads on the zone the, reads. The zone reads. After I complimented, he had a, he had a great pull for about a 20 yard gain. And I was like, ah, Oh, that's the best zone read I've seen an Oregon quarterback make since Marcus Mariota is here. And then he misses like two in a row on the goal line and they end up having to kick a field goal. Um, but I think all in all those injuries, like I said, I mean, the Herbert one obviously steals the headlines. Those other injuries were maybe just almost as costly just because it completely threw this offense off. And you saw it. I mean, they scored 10 points in that first quarter and then nothing from there. Burmeister became a second true freshman to start at quarterback, uh, in as many, as many seasons to the Ducks, uh, prior to, that Justin Herbert started last year, uh, I think almost essentially at the same point in the season, uh, for Oregon last yeah, year. Exactly, sixth game. And he, you know, they're the first two freshmen to, to start a game out of Oregon since Chris Miller did in 1983. Um, a couple notes to, to mention of streaks that have snapped. Um, Oregon's FBS best streak of scoring 20 points or more, uh, in an, every game is over at 47 straight. Uh, the last time they, they scored less than 20 points was November 23rd, 2013 in a 42-16 defeat to the Arizona Wildcats. And then uh, the 10 points scored at home is the fewest since 
uh, a 37-10 loss again to Arizona and on November two, uh, 18, 2006. I don't know if people remember that or not. That was the game Gronk went abs- oh, that's right. yeah. absolutely crazy um, uh, against Oregon. Uh, and the last time Oregon scored fewer than 10 points at home was uh, a 1992 loss to UCLA when they only scored six. So did quite get there. This was one of the worst offensive performances uh, at at Oregon we've seen in a while. Almost like basically a decade. Yeah. Looking at the numbers, <laughs> they they finished with uh, just 277 yards of total offense, uh, 132 yards rushing, an average of just 2.9 yards per carry. It's been a long time since. We've said that Oregon averaged less than three yards per carry. You know, they've always been, whether it was Willie Taggart, Mark Helfrich, Chip Kelly, Mike Bellotti, yeah. they've always been a very, very good run team. Uh, they struggled in that department. Uh, they only threw for 145 yards. Yeah, 145 yards passing. Uh, <coughs> only a 5.4 yard per average attempt. Yeah. Uh, it, overall, everything was... Very poor. Well, I think I think as a as a whole, I think the average three and a half yards per play, which you, you you literally cannot win a football game unless you're playing in the SEC or your defense is scoring touchdowns, yeah. and neither of those things took place. Three point eight. They they had three point eight yards per play, and yeah. the backbreaker here is Oregon's defense played well enough to win. Mm-hmm. It's just the offense did not rise up to the challenge, and you know, the offense had a couple turnovers. Washington State scored ten points off those turnovers, and you, know, you eliminate those. Those points off turnover, the short field positions that they got, plus the the turnover on downs, the turnover on downs, seventeen points off of turnovers, yeah. And it's it's fourteen to ten, yeah. It's excuse me, it's sixteen to ten, yeah. Instead of thirty three to ten. Well, and I I actually didn't have a problem at the time with the Willie Taggart going forward on fourth. I thought you know they they knew that premium you know offensive possessions that were going to go far were at a premium in that game. See if you can kind of make a statement there. The fact that they got stuffed there, though, and then they kind of kept trying to go for it in short yardage in the same manner, to me, was a little more concerning. The offensive line just could not get pushed there on those short down situations. They had a number of third and ones and fourth and ones where they basically got stuffed at the line. You, you can't. You can't. You can't keep going that way. And and that's one of those things I'm sure they're going to work, work on this week because that's a trend you can't have. Oregon coming in, <clears throat> a couple weeks ago I did their third down uh, stats and third and short they were basically money. I think yeah. they I think they had been stopped on one down the first four games on third and short. Stopped I think I can think of at least three times on Saturday on those downs against Washington State who does not have a very big front. Um, Oregon should have been able to get a little more push up front and I think it's a little disappointing that they were not able to kind of we kind of went in saying the way this team is going to win the game is establishing a run game and, and that, that really never took place. Um, against Cal they were able to dominate the line of scrimmage uh even with Cal recognizing that they were going to be running the ball, you know, upwards of 75% of the time, Washington State, no, no such luck. Yeah, you, you go back and, and you look at um, the, the, the two games that they've played and against California and against Washington State. Uh, Oregon was 6 of 14 on third down against, against California, <clears throat> 2 of 17 on third down. Uh, against Washington State, and I, I want to think almost the numbers were even worse Arizona State. So let me look those up real quick. But the last three weeks, I'm pretty certain Oregon has struggled 
on on third down. Yeah, they were one of eleven. Yeah, they were batting as well. Yeah. So they were they were one of eleven <coughs> against Arizona State three weeks ago. They were four of sixteen against California last week, and two of seventeen uh, on third down uh, this past weekend. And and I think a huge part of that is because of penalties. Mm-hmm. Oregon had six penalties, I think, called on the offensive line pre-snap. And then they had two more that were called uh, during the, the the play that resulted in, yeah. the, you know, nullifying a, a play. And what what's crazy is that, you know, the first three games of the season, Oregon was actually pretty good on third down. You know, they, they, were, were. One, they were one of the better teams in the country – and all of a sudden, after three straight weeks, they've now dropped to 37% conversion rate on third down. And, and a large part of that is self-inflicted wounds. You know, I think going into that game, you, like you said, you knew Oregon was going to have to run the ball. Washington State knew they were going to have to run the ball. And they proved it against California they could do it. Mm-hmm. Step up in competition, obviously, from Cal to, to Washington State's defense. I'd agree. But... I don't think the Cougar defense was really that much better. Maybe they are. Maybe they'll they'll go on and and they'll dominate opponents all the way till the Apple Cup, the end of the end of the season against the Huskies, and we'll get a true test. But I didn't feel like that was a game where Oregon was was playing bad because Washington State was just so elite. I just felt like they were sloppy. Mm-hmm. They weren't executing. And Oregon's running backs weren't hitting the holes as quickly as they needed to. Well, I, you know, and we hear Taggart now say this week after week we aren't executing, and that sounds like a cop out. And, and frankly, it would be maybe nice to hear him say some different terminology because we've heard that now week after week after week. But the reality is the numbers don't the numbers back it up. I mean, the number of penalties this is the most penalized team in the country, right? In terms of number of penalties and in yardage, that's a terrible trend, and that and that does have to do with not executing because a lot of these are just dumb pre-stat penalties. We saw it against Arizona State. I think five false starts. I think they had five or six false starts against Washington State on Saturday, including they had two back two, to back two to start, to start the, game. the game. And um, you're at home too. You can't make those mistakes. And I, and I know it sounded like there were some issues with um, Burmeister and maybe not being quite loud enough with the snap count um, early on. They corrected that and they kind of got better. But you you can't make those type of mistakes and try to win football games against good teams. And you've seen that now twice cost them. But even in games, I think I think five out of six games. Ten penalties or more. I yeah, mean, that's it's just bad. You, you, you can't. It's really hard to win football games playing like that, unless you're playing against really bad teams. And I think maybe Oregon was able to benefit against Southern Utah, against Nebraska, and against Cal, but not against a team like Washington State and Arizona State. We know that was a that was a kind of a weird game, but this is a trend that has to stop, especially going into you know the, the meat of their schedule now right. without their starting quarterback. With a little bit of doubt probably creeping into some minds, you, you got to play more clean football, and it, it gets more difficult when you go on the road now for two games. You know they play two home games and still making a lot of the same Mental mistakes. mistakes. And now you go on the road, and it's just going to be more difficult. We know Stanford and, and UCLA aren't really known for being like that really loud, and, you know, intense environment. Still, not a home game. Yeah. You're not going to be a lot of green and yellow there. Um, and those things have to change. The things that I look at is this: this is a team. When it's third and three, third and four, in the current situation with, with Braxton Burmeister at quarterback, Charles Nelson, Dylan Mitchell mm-hmm. out with injuries, I feel like this team can get a third and three, third and four first down. They can run the ball, and they can get that first down. But when you put yourself 
in a third and seven or a third and eight, I I would almost take a bet that says 80% of the time they're not going to get the first down. And that means you have to be at your best okay. on first down because you've got to get some kind of net positive gain for your offense. You can't go backwards. You can't you can't go you, you can't get stuff for a no game. Yeah. And we saw that time and time again. And I think what people aren't putting together here is because we heard a lot on Twitter, on the message board, uh, during the game, and then especially after the game. Uh, we heard it as well all day Sunday that why do they keep running up the gut? Why do they keep running the football on first down? Why aren't they throwing screens or why aren't they throwing deep? Well, A, they couldn't give Burmeister time to run to throw the ball deep because they're – until Oregon could connect the pass and open, soften up the defense, Washington State and whoever they play moving forward is going to stack the box yeah. and they're going to bring pressure. Because if it's a run, they're, you know, perfect, perfect execution. If it's a pass play, you're going to get in Burr Reister's face really quickly. Uh, second of all, he can't see over the field. I mean, he's 5'11. You have to understand that he's got to get a deep drop to, to see downfield. To get a deep drop, you have to have good pass protection. And they've proven after Washington State, they couldn't do that. And then the next option is, well, why don't they throw screens? Oregon doesn't have the guys outside to hold the blocks on the perimeter to run screens. They did it four, five, six times against the Cougars. I mean, you, you go and you look at Taj Griffin and you, you – Those look, are all screens, by the way. Yeah, you look at – He led the team in receptions and he had 19 yards. I mean, they're, they're just plays where it's tackle for loss of one, three yards, two yards – you know, they can't hold the blocks. They just don't have – I don't know if it's toughness. I don't know if it's technique. I don't know if, if it's – Inexperience. If it's inexperience or if it's just sheer size. But we've seen this now. It's it's, it's six games in. Oregon is who they are mm-hmm. at this point and at, at the receiver position. And the guys that are playing and the guys that are hurt even are not guys that you can ask consistently – to block downfield, hold blocks to allow your screenplays to, to develop. Now, could you maybe send your offensive lineman out there? Maybe, but we haven't seen that all year. Yeah. Well, I think going back to what you said earlier about converting short third downs, it's all about being on schedule. That's what Coach Cristobal has said time and time again this season. And that basically to be on schedule, you just have to gain three yards on first down, three yards on second down, or more, obviously. And that puts you in third and manageable. The issue this season, and especially this past week, was first down, stopped for a one-yard loss, second down, incomplete pass, and now it's third and 11. And you've got, like you said, probably a 10% chance of converting it with the personnel to have out there. And, and it'll be interesting to see how they – I mean, I know I know it, <laughs> it stinks to say, but if the quarterback play is not good enough, you are going to be running the ball on first and second down just to see if you can get three or four yards to make it easier on third down to convert. I mean, this is – I think the hard thing for Oregon fans to understand is because they've been so incredibly dynamic offensively for basically a decade where getting a first down is not an issue. Scoring 42 points is not an issue. Now you're going to look at a team that's going to just have to grind out games. I mean, they're, they're not capable of going out and not scoring teams. And fortunately, I think they have a defense that's capable of keeping them in Absolutely. Games. The defense I mean, that's, that's the, that was the one silver lining for me was that Washington State, one of the best offenses in the country, one of the top pass offenses in the country – Oregon actually did a pretty good job. Luke Falk held the season lows in completions and yardage. 
369 total yards allowed. Not not too shabby. You'll take that 33 points. I think they averaged 41 or 42 points a game, so they kept them beneath that. And that 33 points were kind of add-ons at the end of the game. They kicked a field goal pretty late. Um, this defense fought. I think the defense is very, very capable. I mean, it, they, they held Washington State to basically four field goals, one sustained scoring drive, and then two touchdown drives that were on short fields. I mean, at Washington so State, or, you held Oregon. Oregon's defense held the Cougars under their scoring average, held them 100 yards less than their total average uh, yards per per game. Uh-huh. They <laughs> held them almost a whole yard per play average below their season average. So Oregon's defense was legit. Mm-hmm. And you add in the fact that the deep, the offense put them in a tough bind where it was the Cougars took over at the Oregon 41-yard line to start the game. Um, and they quickly went at Blake Rugraff for that touchdown. Uh, and then you also added in another situation where Oregon threw an interception that I thought was a, a defensive pass interference call yeah. with a receiver. Johnny, I think it was Johnny Johnson. Let's just, got, let's just say the, the pass interference calls were all out of whack. Yeah. Game. I mean, it was weird. I mean, Johnny Johnson got literally pushed to the ground on a jump ball play, and then Cougar the defender picked it off, ran it back to the 25, and the very next play they scored a touchdown. You know, the the, the defense got put. <coughs> A couple times and yeah. some really tough binds that, yeah, you don't want to allow touchdowns. You'd love to have seen the, the Duck defense hold and maybe give up a field goal instead of a touchdown. But at the same time, they were out there a ton. That, you know, They were having to play basically the perfect game, and yet they accomplished a lot. They got a ton of sacks. I think they got four or five more sacks. Luke Falk was constantly under pressure. If you go back and you watch the game against the Cougars and you focus on the defensive tackles, the nose guards – uh, awesome Fialo and Jordan Scott, while they maybe didn't have the big statistical game, they dominated up front at the center yeah. position. This defense is legit. I think we can say they're probably not the best defense, or I can fairly say it, they're not the best defense in the back 12. Yes. Uh, they're probably not the second best, but after that, you could make a case that this team is probably playing as well as any other team in the pack 12 and as a top three, top four defense in the league. We'll see how that plays out in the next couple of weeks because, like you said, they're playing the meat of the schedule. But you've got a defense now where you can say, hey, we need to make it a 27-24 game, and we can win. Isn't this bizarro world where they're talking about Oregon football, and it's like, oh, they need the defense to play good, and the offense just needs to play just good enough. Like, how weird is that? And Going back to your, you know, the, the red zone defense, Washington State was in the red zone four times. They scored four times, but only one of those were touchdowns. And I think that you'll take that as a win. Here, let's go through some questions we've got here. We've got quite a few. Um, let's see here what's still pertinent. Why do we continue to be one of the most penalized teams in college football? We kind of talked about I think that's that a little bit. I think part of it's coaching. I think a lot of that. I think I, I think the players are obviously responsible for those pre-snap penalties. But I know Coach Taggart wants to promote a, a fun environment, but I think sometimes that comes at the cost of guys being almost too amped up. But I also, I also wonder about some of these pass interferences if this is just reputation calls. Yeah, it seems, I mean, it seems, like, it seems like Oregon's not getting the benefit of doubt on any, on any I mean, pass interference. I calls. would agree that there were some pass interference calls on the defense that were, uh, shall we say bad. Yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch of other words I could use to, to describe those, uh, penalties, but we're a family show. Um, right. <laughs> but I think at the same time, there are a lot of self-inflicted penalties. There's false starts. Yeah. There's holdings. There's personal fouls. Um, and those type of, you know, there's, there's plays as, as Taggart calls them where you're trying to make a play 
and yeah. things just happen. Yeah. Um, Oregon's had their fair share of those, but they've also, I think, had more of the, the self-inflicted ones. And to me, that's coaching. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to make it clear you're either not playing until this gets cleaned up or this is unacceptable and you find a way to rectify it and, and prevent it from happening <coughs> moving forward. Yeah. Um, for the false start stuff, um, the offside stuff, face masks, the, you know, targeting, those types of things, those can be prevented. Those can be taught not to do. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hope so, but I mean, Oregon's still making false starts left and right. And I know part of that is in, incorporating a new quarterback, but um, you just wonder when those things are going to get corrected. Because, like I guess a 10 penalties a game, you can't do that. <coughs> I think the big penalty that stands out for me was, I think it was true freshman Samson New, one of his first snaps. Third down, Oregon gets the stop, but he's called for, I think, either a legal hands to the face or roughing the quarterback. Um, that extends a Washington State drive. They get three points off of it. That's basically gifting a team three points, and you can't do that at this level. Um, let's see if we've got more questions here. Roger McDowell, so only one more win besides Oregon State. Come on, they can do better than that. Um, looking at the schedule, it's going to be tough to win probably more than two games this year. I think Utah, I would circle as a game that looks possibly winnable, depending on how things play out. Um, I went into this. We left Washington, <coughs> we left Washington State in the press box Saturday night. And I kind of cracked the joke. I'm, I'm glad I'm not going to Stanford and you are. <laughs> right. Because it's an 8 p.m. kickoff. <coughs> they're going to get drilled by, by Stanford. I don't necessarily am starting to think that anymore. I, really? I don't know if they're going to, I don't think they're going to win. But Stanford's defense is not what Stanford is known for. Oregon has a better defense than Stanford. They, they, they are in the top 100 in yards per game. They are in, I think, like 96 in yards allowed per play. Um, I just feel like <coughs> they're not what we typically see. Are they, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're 112th in the country in third down conversions allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not this juggernaut defensively that we, that we've been used to seeing. Now, they have, I think, one of the five best players in the country, Bryce Love. And that's the issue. And that's the issue. Um, how is Oregon going to withstand the onslaught up front defensively against a good defensive line with, you know, I think you can say Oregon's D lines is not elite, but they're pretty good. Pretty dang good, yeah. Um, Troy Dye is elite. Mm-hmm. Justin Hollins, Jonah Moy have, have proven that they're pretty good players um, this season. But you've got a huge glaring wart at the other, other inside linebacker position yeah. um, because you've lost your two star, your your starter. Start the year in A.J. Hodgkins with an injury. His backup, Kalana Apalu, has now been lost for a season for an injury. Um, and... You're regulated to playing, and no offense to these guys, but you know, beginning of the year, they they were where they were for a reason. Yeah, you're asking a Blake Rudgraff, a sophomore walk on, Jimmy Swain, a senior inside linebacker who has hardly played this season, um, because of, because the guys ahead of him are just that much better, or true freshman Samson New, who played his first game last week against Washington State, to have to start, and then the other guys are going to have to play. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if, if Oregon can kind of do what opponents are doing to them, 
against Stanford's offense because Costello, KJ Costello, is nothing mm-hmm. to, to at least we've seen on paper yet to to see that hey he's going to dominate Oregon. I mean, he he had a worse game than Burmeister did. Six of eight for sixty yards or eighty yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. You know, Stanford literally didn't ask him to do anything. Just hand the ball off to Bryce Love. Uh, and the, the other two games he's played in, he's had about 150 yards passing performance. They don't have a passing game. The, the more I'm hearing about this, the more I'm thinking this might be a quick night in uh, Palo Alto. Yes. This could be just – we might have like 12 <laughs> pass attempts. It's just going to be a run, 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 which, hey, for me, not too bad. I mean, so maybe, maybe Stanford – maybe Stanford's a game that, you know, you play perfect – Offensively, and you get your typical defensive performance. Maybe a steal one there. I, I yeah. think, I think they can beat Utah, um, especially with with Huntley out at quarterback. Mm-hmm. If he comes back, that kind of changes things for me because um, with Troy Williams at quarterback for the Utes, that they're an entirely different team. Yeah. Um, but I still think they can beat Arizona. I still think they can beat Oregon State, and that's why those early games, that Cal game especially, was so critical yeah. to win because. You win the two back-end games, you, you, you get your six wins, you're bowl eligible. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think the hard thing with Stanford is that I don't know if Oregon has a player as dynamic. No offense to Royce Freeman, he's kind of banged up, but Bryce Love is just an incredible player right now. And I'm not sure if you're, if anyone's familiar, he's leading the country in rushing yardage, and he's averaging about 11 yards per carry. Yeah, he's... He is. Why? Well, I think Utah held him to his season low, and it was 155 yards or something like that. Yeah, I mean, he has 1,240 yards and nine touchdowns. The average of ten and a half yards per yeah, carry. It's pretty. Two hundred and six yards per game. Uh, I think he was at a thousand yards after five weeks mm-hmm. of the season. Yeah. No, he, he's he's pretty tremendous, and he. I think he's broken off a run of longer than 50 yards in every game, which is also pretty un- unbelievable. So. You know, he's a, he's a bit of a big play guy, but you know, he's, he also gets it done and you know, he, he's not like he's gonna get stuffed and then, you know, stuff, 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 and then 70 yards, 70 yards. But if Oregon can, can keep him to a, if they can bottle him up as, as best as anyone has this season, if they can eliminate that passing game, which frankly hasn't been very good, and if the offense can be opportunistic, and if Taylor Alley's out there, maybe we'll see a little more of an expanded playbook just cause he's got more experience. Who knows? I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, you, the line opened and, and Stanford, I think, is a 12 point favorite. So yeah. Vegas is kind of moving away from Oregon after they were pretty favorable on that Washington State line, but, um. I think that was probably under the assumption Taylor Alley or Burmeister was a little bit better than. Than they were. Than they were. Right. Um, and, and who knows? Maybe we say Taylor Alley assumed the starting role this week because he wasn't available, um, last week against Washington State, but maybe that changes things. I, I have no idea. Um, but I think, Moving forward, before we head into the recruiting thing, yeah. kind of wrap up this this Cougar loss. It's very evident that Justin Herbert is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can make a case, and you know, I try not to be Homer, but I think it's pretty clear that if Herbert was in that game, I feel like that was an entirely different outcome. Maybe they still lose, but I think it's a one-score possession game. I think Justin Herbert means that much to this offense for Oregon. Um, and then on top of that, we just know now that Oregon's going to have to play, you know, almost a perfect game offensively until Herbert gets back, regardless who's in at, at receiver for Oregon, for them to have a chance. The defense is good enough to keep them there, but the offense has got to be able to muster. They've got to get into 20 points. Get the 20 points, you're going to have a shot in the fourth quarter to win the game. I mean, I think Stanford won 23-20 over yeah. Utah on Saturday, so... 
that certainly feels reasonable. Utah's a great defense as well. Um, it's going to be tough, though. I mean, there, there, there's certainly – we, we want to be optimistic, and, and I do think you see enough from the defense to think that they're capable of winning one, some of these games without Herbert. But there's a there's a scenario here where Oregon is looking at four and six with Herbert back against two teams that aren't very good at the back end at home. We should mention Arizona's actually looks a lot better than we expected. Yes, they just they upset beat Colorado. Colorado at Colorado. Um, but there's a scenario where Oregon is playing for bowl eligibility up until their last game, and I don't think anyone kind of expected that after how they started the season. Um, but injuries to quarterback will do that. So, moving forward into the recruiting <coughs> landscape, um, obviously Oregon's football staff uh, landed a huge verbal commitment the day of the game against the Cougars when Tyler Shuck, uh, four-star quarterback, gave the Ducks uh, a verbal commitment after basically flipping from North Carolina. Uh, he's an elite 11 finalist. You saw him at the opening yeah. with me, and you were you were very impressed with what he did. Yeah, I, I thought he was one of the top quarterbacks there. He was actually playing with Chase Coda and Devin Williams, who are, so I watched quite a bit of them, um, who are two of Oregon's top wide receiver targets. Um, and he can really spin it. I mean, he's got a really live arm. He's a little bit lean, which I'm not sure you, you'd love, but uh, Steve Wolfong, who's who does a lot of analysis for 24-7 sports, compared him to Jared Goff. Yeah. Our na- national scouting director, and that and that is that is a number one draft pick. number one draft pick, a guy who didn't look great against Seattle yesterday, but through, actually they're pretty good in the NFL so far. And obviously we know how good he looked at Cal um, when Oregon played him. But uh, he's a very talented quarterback, and this changes things for Oregon. They needed a quarterback in this class. I mean, you, if if anybody didn't know, didn't think that before the California game, they they knew it. They know it now because Taylor Alley won't be here next year. Braxton Burmeister. Uh, will be the only other scholarship quarterback besides Justin Herbert on the roster next year. So getting Shuck in the line is is a huge pull. Uh, he's a top five national quarterback at his you know as as a pro style quarterback. Um, this is a guy that could come in and compete for backup reps with Braxton next year. And, and who knows if he's prepared enough? Maybe he pushes Herbert a little bit. And I'm not sure he's saying he's going to come in and, and start over Justin Herbert, who'll be a junior at that point, because I don't think that's realistic. But I'm sure they'll. He's going to be. He's. That, that, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some. Uh, Tyler Shuck looks pretty good though. All, all fall camp. I'm sure Tyler Shuck will have as good of a chance as anybody to take that backup quarterback spot behind Justin Herbert um, next season. Because as Braxton Burmeister was a four-star quarterback and a parade All-American in his own right, Shuck is just better physically. You know, He's taller. He can see the field downfield better. Uh, he's mobile enough to to, yeah. to work within this offense. I think you know we've now got a legit competition uh, for who plays next season as a backup uh, behind Justin Herbert between Shuck and and and, and Burmeister. And it is kind of interesting because I think people thought the mold for quarterbacks in a really tagger based upon his um, South Florida time was going to be guys who would run like Quentin Flowers. Yeah, guys who run the ball, and that's where Braxton Burmeister fits in. Well, Herbert obviously was the guy he inherited. He's not—he doesn't fit that mold. He's more of a drop-back passer. Not that he can't run, but Shuck, more of just definitely must much more of the Justin Herbert mold than the Braxton Burmeister mold in terms of what he's able to do. It's not saying he can't run. He's actually—if you watch his huddle highlights—he can tuck it and run a little bit too. But primarily a drop-back passer guy. So it's kind of interesting to see them kind of moving down down that line. And if you look around and just see the talent they bring in at receiver next year, they've already got I believe three four-star wide receivers committed to. High three-star tight ends, um, one of which Spencer Oil, I think, is a four-star talent, no question about it. Um, the passing game looks like it's going to be pretty decent going for It certainly won't be the issue they're running into this year. Yeah, you look at this class, and you pointed this out when they landed the commitment. 
yeah. um, when we were preparing for it, that Oregon has a four-star commitment now at every position group except for tight end. And that, you might, and, that might change. And that you and I, Webb's a four-star yeah, talent. For you sure. and I agree that, that Spencer Webb is a very, very talented three-star tight end and a guy who's grossly underrated and is probably going to you know, see a big bump up once he can get to an all-star camp. I think uh, Rivals are Somebody has him a four star. Maybe rivals. I think rivals has him as a four because yeah. uh, his composite is he's four hundred nineteenth, so he's still quite a bit of ways. Twenty four seven, we have him as almost a twelve hundred rated which recruit is, in the country. Uh, ludicrous. Fiftieth best tight end in the country. There's I mean, no way. You see his talent. You watch his film. You see a guy who's probably going to play next year as a true freshman. Um, but Oregon's you know, to give you kind of a preview for my daily dose tomorrow mm-hmm. um, on Tuesday. What I'm talking about is this recruiting class in general is stacked now. I mean, they're fifth in the country, so you know that they're going to have players. Yeah. They're the best recruiting class by a long shot right now in the Pac-12. Um, they Tyler Shuck, that commitment keeps them in the running. I don't think they'll be able to get there because they'll need like every domino to fall their way to get the number one recruiting class in the country. But they could finish top three. I think that's realistic now by getting Tyler Shuck. Um, they have nine guys. In, in basketball, you want top 100 players. Mm-hmm. In football, you want top 200 players just because there's way more Absolutely. football prospects. Yeah. Um, but you want to get as many top 200 guys as you can get because those are pretty much guys that are going to play day one and, and are going to be multi-year starters for your program. Oregon has nine so far committed in 2018. The three previous years combined – they had ten. I mean, this yeah. is this is a huge influx of talent coming into this program. Where if if Oregon can keep the guys that are underclassmen on this team next year, you know, maybe a couple guys don't go pro. I mean, offensive linemen are all eligible to go pro next year. I don't think any of them I will. Would be shocked. You know, but maybe a Jalen Jokes, a guy who's just really turned the corner defensively. But maybe he decides to leave. No, I don't think he is. I, I would be surprised by that too. Honestly. But. As long as no injuries happen, no transfers happen, no surprise declarations for the NFL happen, you bring everyone back that you've got, and you add this top top five class into the picture, Oregon might see a huge jump in, in how good they are just like that. Well, and I think going off what you said, you mentioned the dominoes to fall, Oregon... Is still Oregon's top three prospects probably the top three targets? Devin Williams, Talanoa Hafunga, and Penny Sewell. And, and those guys are. I mean, Oregon is up. I mean, if they don't lead, they're in the top two for those both of those guys. They're all three of those guys. And if, if they were to go three for three there, then you do put yourself in a position where hey, maybe this is the top class because those are basically two five stars and a very high four star recruit. And who knows if after they you know re rank everybody, Sewell might end up being a five star recruit as well. Um, and that, if they were to land those two, that would put them at 26 commitments. They might take, what, maybe one or two more guys, depending on who, who wants to jump. But. I mean, you you add those three guys into the calculator. Devin Williams, Penesul, Talanova Hafunga. Um, they quickly become your three best verbal commitments mm-hmm. for the 2018 recruiting class. And while the other schools in this scenario haven't added anybody into their class, which they will, yeah, um, but under this scenario, you add those three prospects in, they have a score of 270, their recruiting class score is of 279.19, and that is third best in the country. So they, they jump up two spots. Yeah. They're one and a half points away from passing Texas for number two. 
Uh, Ohio State's at 298.55. They're probably going to stay there the, the entire year. It's, it's, they're going to be hard to catch. They've got almost all their commits as well, and they're already the you know far and away the number one class in the country. But yeah, Oregon's got a legit chance where a thing, a couple things fall their way, and they're going to finish with a top three class. And, it's, and that's pretty remarkable. And I, and I know uh, they're. Off of four and eight years. Exactly. People are considering this to be a rebuilding year. And and while I think Oregon has talent to win a lot of games, the best football under Willie Taggart's ahead of him. You look at this team next year, I think they lose like three starters on both sides, on each side of the ball, so six starters combined. That's basically returning the majority of this year's team. You've thrown in all these top recruits that are, a number of which are probably going to push to start, just like we saw Thomas Graham, uh, you know, uh, Johnny Johnson and, and Jordan Scott and Austin Fiala do this year. This team next year could look very different, but could be very, very, very talented. There's no question about that. Uh, let's wrap things up here by shifting gears by literally changing sports. My gosh. Um, it's October 9th. Basketball has started. Um, and this is a, an interesting year for me because a lot of new faces mm-hmm. on the basketball court. Dan Altman's certainly accustomed to seeing that. You know, four starters are gone. Their sixth band is gone. And Cavell Bigby Williams and, and, and Casey Benson are also gone. Um, a lot of new faces in the elite recruiting class coming in. I don't doubt that Dana Altman's going to have this team playing as one of the three best teams in the Pac-12 at some point. It's just how quickly does that happen? That's one big question. And then my next is off the court. What's going to be the reception with this team within the Oregon fan base and the excitement that comes with it because all new faces, there's not a lot of guys that people are going to recognize, yet Oregon's coming off a Final Four year. Mm -hmm. They're coming off a season where, granted, everyone kind of knew who was on the team. Everyone kind of expected to have a big season. Oregon had one of their best fan attendance years ever Mm -hmm. in program history. They had a ton of sellouts. They had road games at Oregon State. We were there. And it was completely packed mm-hmm. with Duck fans. Um, there were a lot of Duck fans up at Washington last week, uh, last season. So I'm curious, how does this team respond? How does this team look? What's the identity of this team on the court? And then what kind of attention does Oregon's fan base give to this team in, this, in terms of buying power and, and butts in the seats? Yeah, and you mentioned the identity on the court thing, and Dana Altman basically said, I have no idea yet, <laughs> which, is, which is what you expect a coach to say after he's had roughly three practices. You look, you watch them move around, and this is, I think, I can comfortably say far and away the most athletic team I've seen in Oregon field. You know, and, and that's just across the, board, across the board, you know. I mean, last year, I don't think they have the same athletes up front. I mean, it's hard to uh, match Jordan Bell and Chris Boucher's length, but... Oregon is very, very long from basically player one to player eleven. I mean, long, athletic guys. A lot, of, a lot more of that six, six, six foot seven type of body type that can that can do a lot of different things. The guy I was really impressed with watching was Kenny Wooten, though. I, athletic freak. He's a freak. His arms are down to his knees. I, mean, I don't know exactly what his wingspan is, but it looks like it's definitely. He's I think listed at six nine. I'm gonna guess that wingspan is at least seven three, seven four, or something like that. Really long, really athletic. Um, watching him move, you can tell he's incredibly coordinated as well. That's a guy who has about as much upside as I can remember seeing as a, as a true freshman. I know he's didn't come with the fanfare that Troy Brown came with, and I would expect Troy Brown to have a bigger impact early, but Kenny Wooten to me looks like a guy who, who down the line, maybe even sometime this season, 
will have a major, major impact in Oregon. Yeah, Wooten's the guy that Peyton Pritchard or Keith Smith both said that, you know, this team's going to have to play different because Boucher and Bell are gone. You know, both guys are, I think, one and two in program history and shot blocking. Um, And it's not even close anymore um, for the record books. And, you know, so that gives you kind of an idea of what they've lost and the guys that they've brought in. You were kind of hoping Cavell Bigby Williams would stay to be one of those enforcers, shot blocking, rim protectors. Um, but all that's left now is, is Kenny Wooten, a true freshman. Um, and he, Pritchard and Smith basically said he's the only guy that's going to remind people of that talent, that type of play. Wooten was described by Keith Smith like Jordan Bell. Um, we're the same number, by the way, too. Yes. Uh, but MJ Cage is not, you know, a shot blocker. He might be a guy who goes straight up and, is physical and, and you know doesn't allow layups, but he's not going to block shots. Yeah. Um, Paul White, same instance. Uh, Roman Sorkin. We know what we've got there. We know what you've got there at, at power forward center with him. Um, this team's going to be different. I mentioned to Dane Altman that last year this time he was talking about, oh well, we don't got a lot of those six 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 seven type athletes who can play three or four different positions for us. Uh, Oregon this year, I said the same thing. Looks like you have those. Those guys, you go down the line, and Troy Brown, Michael McIntosh, Elijah Brown, Abu Kigab, Kenny Wheaton, uh, Kenny Wooten, um, Keith Smith. Keith Smith. You know, that's six right there. Mm-hmm. That Paul White, seven, that are going to be guys that you can say, you can guard the four, you can guard the five, you can guard the three, you can guard probably the two. Um, you're going to have a lot of versatility defensively, but the guard position is kind of a question mark. Who backs up Peyton Pritchard, that point guard? Is it Troy Brown? Is it freshman? B.J. Bailey, does Elijah Brown, the, the graduate transfer, assume that role? Um, and then your rim protection is kind of a big question mark. But on paper, I agree with you. This team is as loaded as they've ever been. You were impressed with Wooten. I was impressed with the fear, the sheer physicality of Michael McIntosh. He looks like he played defensive end. He, yeah, he, he looks he, like he's built like he's built like Jalen Jones. He's six foot seven, two hundred and forty pounds, and Elgin Cook was. A physical enforcer yeah. for Oregon. Olu Ashalu was another guy. He looks like a hybrid between those two guys. Like Olu didn't have the handles and maybe the lateral quickness of Elgin Cook had, but Elgin Cook didn't have the you know the sheer girth, the size. Right. He was a very strong player, but he wasn't very thick. McIntosh is like a mix between those two guys in that he looks like he can handle the ball, he can shoot the ball. He has good lateral quickness like Elgin Cook, but he's also got he is he looks like a football player. And he could be in Dan Altman's system. We saw that with Dylan Brooks the last three years, where he got mapped up against a slower power forward and he would just go to work on that guy. Uh, and then they they'd try and pair him up with a guard to yeah. keep up with his quickness and he'd go down on the block. McIntosh physically, we you know he led I think he was second in the team last two years at Illinois State in scoring and rebounding. You know, so obviously he's a guy that can play, but can he elevate that up to the Pac-12 level, a Big Five school, um, a Power Five school instead of a, a mid-major? If that happens, he actually might be that wild card for this basketball team. I think in crunch time, you could see a lot of McIntosh and Wooten playing up front in kind of a small ball type lineup, along with probably Brown, Brown and Pritchard. McIntosh feels like a guy who could have like a ten-year NFL career as a tight end, but right. just just his body type. Not, not obviously, I don't know his athletic if he can catch football or not, but he looks like. Somebody. I found uh, Wooten's wingspan. In November he reported 
Um, a seven foot three wingspan. That sounds about right. I mean, and, and I, yeah, I mean, his arms are very, very long. Chris Boucher's, for instance, I believe was seven four, seven four, seven five. Yeah. Um, so that gives you kind of an idea of where Wooten is in terms of just his overall length, and that's what makes Dan Allman's defenses so good. Is when they when they had that length and they were able to do their soft two three matchup zone, you know. It seemed like there was seven guys out there. I go back to that Duke game two years ago in, in the Sweet 16 when they had Dwayne Benjamin in there. They had Chris Boucher, um, and and they also had Elgin Cook, Dylan Brooks in, in the group. And they were. It, it seemed like Duke couldn't get couldn't couldn't figure it out and felt like they there was it was six on five just because Oregon's length was just tremendous. I think you're going to see a lot. I think this is going to be a team that can trap a lot more. I think you might see them. Last year, the rotation kind of was seven, maybe eight guys, depending upon who they were playing in the scenario. I think this year you might see them kind of go nine deep, maybe ten deep, depending upon you know the situation, and, and just kind of run through guys. I do think that they have enough talent at the top to be very competitive. Um, it'll just be interesting to see kind of how everything comes together. Um, like you would expect, defense – Dan Altman's chief concern every every season around this time remains that his concern is just know exactly how they're going to compete at that level. But uh, I, I think there should be a level of optimism. Uh, Oregon opens with, I believe, four home conference non-conference games against um, mid-major type teams. And then the real test will be when they head, head north for the PK-80 and, and, and open up uh, their tournament there. Other big news of the weekend, real quick before we wrap things up here, um, is for basketball, Oregon found out that at the Team USA basketball workouts for the, the U19 team, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, Bull Bull, the number three ranked prospect in 2018, seven foot one, power forward slash center, unicorns, unicorn, he can block shots, shoot threes. Son of Manute. Yeah, son of Manute, just like Chris Boucher, but I think more athletic, more skilled. Um, than Boucher was at his time at Oregon. He eliminated Arizona, UCLA, and USC. Uh, and for Arizona and USC, he flat out said, the FBI investigations, I don't want anything to do with that. So they're gone. Um, Arizona was kind of perceived to be the favorite going into his five official visits. He's seen Oregon. He's now down to Kentucky and Oregon. He's going to visit the Wildcats this weekend. And then sometime in the next couple of weeks, he says he hopes to have a decision um, I think Oregon's chances just drastically skyrocketed up. I said it on Twitter, I said it on the Daily Dose on Duck Territory that I felt like they were the first, they were the, the leader after his first official visit, which was to Oregon. Mm-hmm. But my feeling and my fear was that he wasn't going to keep Oregon up up top after he saw USC, after he saw Arizona, after he saw Kentucky, and after he saw UCLA for official visits. I just thought. Chances of that that momentum staying there were very slim. Now that it's just a, a two team race, and you don't want to compete against Kentucky if you don't have to. Oregon's history is not very good. But I feel like he's a West Coast kid, close to his parents. Maybe you know Oregon's got the proof that they can use him in a way that best suits his skill set with Chris Boucher. Obviously, Kentucky's got the NBA you know factory pipeline in their pocket. But Kentucky hasn't had a guy like that before, and California hasn't shown that, you know, hey, this is how you can play in our system, you know, with physical proof of it actually playing out that way. Whereas Oregon can say, go look at the last two years of our highlights of Chris Boucher. That's going to be you, but better. Not only that, but you you and I were speaking about this, I think, 
last on, on Saturday before the Oregon game, Calipari had an opportunity to select Bull Bull for the U19 game this past summer, which Peyton Pritchard played on. Louis King also played on an Oregon commit. Um, did not select Bull Bull. Yeah. And I think from what we've read, that did not sit well at all with uh, the five-star recruit to be passed up for something like this. So it'll be interesting to see. I think it looks kind of like Calipari's going to have some bridges to build here over the course of the next week here if, if he wants to land that commitment. I know Oregon is starting to get a little bit of crystal ball, which is our predictions on 24-7 sports. Um, a little bit of crystal ball love, which is, I think, always encouraging. I think they have one crystal ball pick. I think Kentucky's starting to kind of trend a little bit more. But it'll be interesting to see kind of what develops here. This is, you know, we talk about Kenny Wooten's length. This guy's length is uh, a, a little different level. I mean, Kenny Wooten's got a seventh wingspan. I would I would guess Bull Bull's wingspan might be close to eight feet. He has a standing reach of 7'9". Okay. I don't go. know what his wingspan is, but his standing reach is 7'9". And um, Oregon has 8% of the Bull Bull predictions. Uh that's not the most recent one. The most recent one came on Sunday evening from Kentucky, right. to Kentucky. Um, the Blue Devils, or the Wildcats, not the Blue Devils. They've got a 58% lead, 17% have Arizona, 17% have Foggy, meaning people don't know where he's going, which is likely because the fact that he came out and eliminated uh, two, Ari- of, his favorites, two yeah. of his favorite schools. Um, Oregon's got just as good of a chance as Kentucky in going into this one, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's just going to be how well does he enjoy Kentucky and does he kind of want to be one of six or seven five stars or does he want to be one of two or three uh, at Oregon next season. Um, that's going to do it for us. Uh, for Eric Scopel, I'm Matt Prame. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Go to facebook.com slash Oregon247 to like our page, get notifications when we go uh, live again. We'll have more stuff throughout the week. We'll have another podcast getting ready for Stanford and uh, we'll – we starting to implement more and more basketball in as the season now is less than three weeks away wow. when they play their first exhibition game against NCU uh, on October 30th, I believe it is. So until we talk to you soon, we will thank you for listening to us, and we'll catch you soon. Thanks, guys.